there was a, uh, like a social media post that asked people to tell stories about conflicts in church. You want to hear some of the stories? <laughs> or do we? Sometimes we talk about bad church experiences, and if you've had one here, sorry. We try to limit how many. Most of us who've been in church for too long have had bad church experiences, and we try to avoid them as much as we can. But, uh, but they happen. And, and maybe here, another thing I want to say is if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe it's because of a bad church experience where you don't want anything to do with the church or with God. And we want, just want to say we're thankful that you're here with us this morning. And we hope something that happens here is positive for you. So anyway, here we go. Social media posts, tell us about some of the conflicts in your church. Here's one of them. One church had a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase. Black or brown, two, three, or four doors. 45-minute argument. Heated. All right. Another church had a dispute over whether communion should use cran grape or regular grape. You can see, you know, you can see where that could cause some issues. I had a seminary uh, professor who talked about using Pepsi and nacho Doritos once, and he said that was a bad idea. Not going to do that again. Um, one church had two business meetings to discuss whether or not to buy a weed eater. One church reported argument over what type of green bean was served at the church potluck. Another church argued over whether to call it a church potluck or a pot blessing. Another one reported a major conflict when the youth group borrowed a crock pot that hadn't been used for several years, but they didn't ask. And here, this is the last one. One, it's not a denomination, it's a movement, and I won't tell you which movement, but had a major disagreement slash split on whether or not guys should be allowed to wear neckties. Now, some of us like we hear these things kind of groan, and some of us have been to church meetings that have been about stuff like that, and it's like, oh, these are not made up. Like those of us who have been around enough to know they aren't made up. And conflict is a part of life. It's a part, if you're in a church family for any amount of time, there's going to be conflict. If you're in a family for any amount of time, there's going to be conflict. That's the way that life goes. We get disagreements, conflicts, wounded in our families, and our churches, and our different places. And again, we, we hope and pray that we're not one of those churches that are just multiplying the bad church experiences, but, but we're aware of it. So today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at a church conflict from the very early days of the church when it was just getting started. And this conflict didn't involve anything uh, like filing cabinets or weed eaters or green beans. It was something that was a little more sensitive of a topic. Uh, so um, we, uh, before we get into this week's conflict, we're going to do a short little recap of what we talked about last week. So in the book of Acts, Jesus appears and he has this great commission and he charges the disciples with being witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
And in Acts, it starts out, and they're great witnesses in Jerusalem. But the, the church didn't really spread out until they were persecuted. Then once persecution came in, it was by necessity that people spread out. And the gospel first went to places like or further out in Judea and Samaria because of persecution. And we looked at one church that was started by people whose names that we don't know, but it was a groundbreaking church. It was the model church in the book of Acts. The model church wasn't in Jerusalem where all the disciples were, Peter and John and James and Matthew and Thomas and all those guys. The model church was in a place called Antioch. Now, Antioch, it may say Syria in the New Testament, but it is in modern-day Turkey, but it's very close. It's like 12 miles away from the Syrian border. So that's where Antioch is located, and it's this model church. It's groundbreaking. It's the first place, in fact, where Gentiles, people who weren't Jewish people, came to follow Jesus. So this thing happened. Uh, The grace of God had done it. The people in Jerusalem heard because there are people from different cultures. It was started by leaders from uh, Cyrene and Africa and Cyprus, a Mediterranean island. And they met there in the Syria-Turkey area and planted this incredible brown-breaking church where the gospel was proclaimed, the gospel that there is neither nor Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female, slave nor free. It, it broke through all those barriers of of race and ethnicity and social economic class and gender and and all of that. And it was just this place where these incredible things were happening. So the leadership in Jerusalem, the guys who stayed in Jerusalem, sent out a guy named Barnabas. And he went and investigated it. And it said he saw what the grace of God had done. We don't know exactly who started it. But then he was so excited about this that he went and, and traveled to Tarsus, further into Turkey and found a guy who was called Saul at the time. We're calling him Paul because the Apostle Paul goes more by Paul than Saul. So he went, Barnabas went to go get Paul and they came back and they taught in the church in Antioch for a whole year. Things were fantastic. Now Antioch was great before Paul and Barnabas arrived and it stayed great and great things were happening. And today... We're going to pick up with the problem. Wouldn't it be nice if the the good times would last forever? But they don't, do they? There are always problems. You can have nice stretches where things are going well, but then something happens. And this is the first hiccup where we're going to pick back up. Acts 11, 27 through 28. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, Jerusalem is south of Antioch, but coming down the language, they use coming down because... Maybe because Israel or Jerusalem is the center, and maybe because it's on a little bit of a hill. But anyway, so during this time, some prophets came down to Antioch from Jerusalem. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. All right, so right now, the church in Antioch learns Good times aren't going to last forever. It's going to get hard here. We're going to be challenged. So how are they going to respond to this first big challenge after things have been going so well for so long? What are they going to do? How are they going to respond? Well, Acts goes into Acts eleven twenty nine through 30. The disciples, this is in Antioch. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. 
This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So in other words, this incredible congregation, where it's just the model church, when they hear about a problem, their first thought isn't necessarily, what do we do about us? What's going to happen to us? They think, well, we we heard about this from Jerusalem. We need to do something to help them. I think maybe we have a little bit more right now in terms of resources. Let's, Let's go help. So this is the kind of congregation in Antioch where they were looking out for others, trying to help. And they sent out their gifts by Barnabas and Saul. For a while here, Barnabas's name comes before Saul slash Paul. And that's because Barnabas was more prominent for a while. So they do this, and this is actually the first time that we know of that they are on a mission. And the mission is just taking money from Antioch and taking it to Jerusalem to give and bless the church in Antioch. So This is their first mission, but it's not their last mission. So after they, they do that, we're going to pick back up Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Now we get some names. Maybe some of these were some of the ones who helped plant it. Barnabas. Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the, the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, the, they placed their hands on them, that being Paul and Barnabas. And we learn later... Uh, Mark goes with them. They placed their hands on them and sent them off. So this is what, they'd already been on a mission. This is what we call their first missionary journey. And, and pay attention, who, who was the one who called Paul and Barnabas to go out on this missionary journey? The Holy Spirit, the, the whole church. This wasn't just Paul, the great individual, the apostle who wrote about half of the books in the New Testament saying, Hey, I got this great idea. I'm going to go. The church was dedicated to this time in prayer. And leaders from the church, people in the church have been praying, said, you know, this is great here, but it shouldn't stay here. Let's send out. Paul and Barnabas haven't been here forever. So let's send them out. And it was strategic, too, because they first go to Cyprus, which is where Barnabas was from. And then they, they go from there. So the first missionary journey that they had, Paul and Barnabas, this is one of three or four of, that Paul went on. They go out and incredible things happen. They saw what the grace of God did to the ends of the earth as the gospel was spreading out. And so they came back, and when they came back from the first missionary journey, they're back in their home church in Antioch, and everyone was excited. They couldn't believe the great things that God was doing all over the world. And again, the good times don't last forever. This happened next. Acts 15.1. Certain people came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And so, okay, so Jerusalem is coming back. Judea is coming back. Last time that they sent a prophet, he predicted a famine. This time, what are they going to say? Because remember, they had been there. They'd given money. Are they going to come? And are they going to come and say, thank you for that gift? You really blessed us. Thank you for providing. We were able to help this many people, this many orphans and widows. It was incredible. Or are they going to say, wow, look at this success. It's not just great here in Antioch, but 
now this thing is spreading all over the world. Will you teach us? Can we learn what you're doing? <laughs> nope, that's not what happened. Instead, this is what, uh, instead, this is what happened next, the, after the and. So these people came, they were teaching the believers. So this is the, the people from Jerusalem area that's not really reaching new people. <laughs> they come to the place that's given them financial support, that's, that's reaching all kinds of new people, doing mission endeavors. And they, they decided to be the teachers of them. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So think about this. Great things are happening in Antioch. They'd been helping in, in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is telling them all that they're doing is wrong, that they need to learn because they're, people, people aren't going to be saved because of the way they're doing things. So how do you think this is going to go over? Like a lead balloon, right? So what happens here? They didn't come to learn or thank. They came to teach. And, and in Acts 15, 2, we see this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Sometimes people talk about going back to the church of Acts where things were all kumbaya and peachy and everybody always got along. They haven't read the book of Acts. There are sharp disputes. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, so here we go again, along with some of the other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So here we are. This is, we call this the Council of Jerusalem. This is the, like the first big church meeting, and it's over, it's over a big question here. So the meeting kicks off. There's some pleasantries. It kicks off, and then it says in Acts 15.5, then some of the believers, and again, these are part of the church, they're believers, these are people who believe in Jesus, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. There's the elephant in the room, address. There's tension now. And they make a real black and white statement. To them, it's clear that the scriptures teach that people have to be circumcised in, over, in order to be saved. So the Bible is on their side. Maybe their mindset is something like, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. That's kind of that attitude, like, hey, the Bible says this, that's your argument. And they were, they were really confident. They thought that they were just following the scriptures and that they had won the debate here. Now, keep in mind the New Testament hasn't yet been written. Paul is still a guy called Saul. He's not the Apostle Paul who's written about half of the books of the New Testament. Probably hasn't written any yet. To, to them, this Saul guy, this Paul guy, is just this heretic who's misleading people. He's just some upstart who's gotten it wrong and is a troublemaker. So he's misguided. So they thought it clearly taught something other than what Paul is. And this is what we go on to in verses 6 through 7. So the apostles and elders met to consider the question. So they didn't just say, you're right, it's over. There was much, after much discussion. Now here, I think it's really merciful that Luke summarizes this after much discussion. Again, if you've ever been in some contentious church meetings, sometimes in much discussion, there's a whole lot that goes on in here. 
Now, who knows what the much discussion was, but the point is the case wasn't closed. How much discussion? One church in America spent two separate meetings on a weed eater. This is about something bigger, like how much discussion is this? Hours, minutes, days, weeks, months? It's much discussion. We don't know. And again, I think mercifully we don't. Luke fast-forwards, and we're going to fast-forward too with what Luke tells us because there are statements made by Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, and then James. Now, James, Jesus had a disciple named James who's one of the three, but this is a different James. This is Jesus' brother, James. He's the one who wrote the book of James, and he was the leader at the church in Jerusalem. He rode to prominence. So he was the, the first leader. They called him a bishop or pastor of uh, the church in Jerusalem. So he has a lot of authority. And so this is what he says as he addresses the crowd. He, he eventually gets to his judgment. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now again, the verdict goes to Paul and Barnabas, but where there are losers and winners, and the compromise isn't really there, a lot of times the ones who their decision goes against them, they don't just quietly accept it and think, oh great, this is wonderful. Paul was right, I was right. I'm sorry. And I'm guessing that didn't happen here. Now, some people say that the reason why James included in there about the, the part about blood, uh, they should, should refrain from blood and all that, was about more about really what was important, less about what was important, and more about the bad blood in the room, trying to address that bad blood and create more unity with the people who had lost this verdict to try to bring the church together. It was maybe a little bit of a compromise. But the main principle is we cannot make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. James would go on to write something really important. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Last week we talked about Jesus praying for, telling the people to pray for more workers for the harvest. And James gets really specific. It's not just any harvest, so it's not just about this quantitative harvest, where you just bring in as much as you can. But there's a qualitative issue too. And it's got to be done the right way. Because it's not just a harvest of random people or whatever, getting the most, most people you can. But there's got to be a harvest of righteousness. Or another way to say this is rightness or even justice. Like it's got to be fair. It's got to be right. It's got to be like Jesus. Because they, they couldn't gloat over the people who lost it. They might have been tempted to dismiss the Judeans, but that would have distracted them from the real enemy, which is Satan, and from the real mission, which was following Jesus, who taught, blessed are the peacemakers. And when he prayed, he had a really important pray, prayer. This, is, you see, is not just about bringing in a lot of people. It's not about just winning friends and influences people. It's not just about quantitative. It's qualitative. C.S. Lewis has this really good quote, which is, and if you lose sight of this, you lose, no matter how many people come in. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. If you win a church debate and you're nothing like Jesus, 
who taught us really specific things about persecution. Blessed are the, those who are persecuted, not those who do the persecuting. Blessed are those who insult, not the ones who do the insulting. Like if, you, if, you, if we compromise on that and lose the character of Christ, we lose. So what is the harvest? It's not a harvest of, you imagine just harvest of corn. If you went out and had a harvest of corn or beans, like that would be great. But if it's a harvest of beets, like that's not quite as good, right? No offense, sorry. We follow the Prince of Peace, and they were very concerned with the aftermath of everything. Later, they already did one offering. Later, they do another offering to try to bring people together. Because as they taught, as far as it is possible, make a concerted effort to live with all people in peace. We're called to the Ministry of Reconciliation. So the application from last week was to just simply pray for more workers. I said something to Jenny. She said, that's my second prayer. My first one is to pray for unity. And that is the prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden. Lord, make them one. He prayed for us. Specifically, he prayed for future believers, us, those of us here who believe. He prayed for us. He prayed that we may be one as he and the Father were one. So that's the number one prayer. So that's, that's a simple application today. Pray for unity. So this morning, uh, as, our prayer, as our praise team comes up, if you're drawn to the gospel, I want to invite you to pray this prayer with us. Just go ahead and read this to read this prayer from Scripture if you're drawn to the gospel this morning. Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus died for our sins and was buried, and that he rose from the dead and was seen. I believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God, and I want to turn to God. Please give me your Holy Spirit to guide me to follow Jesus. Help me not to make it difficult for people who are turning to God. Please send more workers in the harvest of righteousness. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Help me to be a blessed peacemaker who sows in peace. In Jesus' name, amen.